Hello and welcome to the One Way to Do It podcast presented by Genius Move Audio Academy. My name is Paul Brewer and in this podcast I chat to audio professionals about their skills. Please visit geniusmove.ie for more details on the academy. Today's guest is Chris Walls of Level Acoustic Design. I first met Chris when he worked with Acoustician Andy Munro in about 2007. In 2014, he went solo. Since then, he's designed studios for Abbey Road, Rack, Tileyard, Coldplay, Mark Ronson, Spotify, Lucasfilm, Warner Brothers and many others, some of whom will be mentioned in the podcast. I started the interview by asking Chris about his work diary. Well, what, what's going on, actually, in terms of work? Like, the last time I was talking to you, it was Google and Apple and all these sort of stuff. Have you moved away from the music, or is there just less demand in the music? And I think, that to an extent, it always has been. It's, it's music for my interest, my sanity and credibility. And then it's post-production and all that sort of stuff for, for, the, money, for the money. I guess where the money is as well, isn't it? Definitely more so. I mean, we're quite lucky, I suppose, the the end of the music market that we be operating in that you know some wealthy individuals Noel Gallagher's and people like that you know he's got a few quid knocking around and and mm. can, af- can afford to do t- to build a studio but um that's kind of not the reality for quite a lot of people so it also is a cash intensive business isn't it it's mental it's, it's ridiculous I, I think um it's, it's the law of diminishing returns isn't it you know, you, you can get a long way with, with some fluff on your walls, a pair of headphones, some speakers and a bit of kit. But if you want to get to the next stage, it's a disproportionate spend to get the next 10%, 20% of quality, I think. So, you know, a lot, a lot of the studios we're doing, they're kind of netting out at about three and a half, four thousand pounds a square metre to go from a shell and core to kind of a funk. That's before you've equipped it or paid the electricity <laughs> you, you can't really have a square meter studio <laughs> <laughs> no and actually the smaller it is the, the the bigger that figure gets because you know your door your aircon and all that sort of stuff is getting spread over a you know, much smaller area you know that 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 seems to be if you want to you know fully isolated really nicely serviced acoustically treated nicely finished space that's kind of where it's coming out at the moment typically that is more commonly affordable in post-production broadcast film that sort of industry than it is in in music i mean it's still a stretch for everyone it's just a shit ton of money really isn't it so the, the music stuff we do by no means is it pro bono but it you know i'll definitely take more of a view on i mean we're only doing the, the design side we're not doing the build so the, the bulk of those costs aren't really down to us but we'll take a view on the design fee a bit if it's an interesting project or you know feels or a kudos project. Exactly that. Exactly that. Yeah, the post production guys they uh, they pay full fare. <laughs> God bless them. <laughs> God bless them. That's it. Exactly. So yeah, but I mean, what, in terms of what we're doing, we're kind of like master service agreements with. So um, what's a master service agreement? I think it just means that they can say have a bash at this, and we can just start on it immediately without having to go through a protracted contracts. Oh right, so it's like a semi-completed contract. Exactly. So we just provide a scope of works and we sort of, I think there's like a prearranged um, rate for each staff level and all that sort of stuff. So, but, but within that, we're designing their facilities in the EMEA region. Currently, we're sort of looking at odds and sods in the US, but with the US side, we're um, kind of putting together these ream standards. So in, in all of their territories, they're 
building screening lounges and mix facilities, editorial facilities and things. So we're trying to not standardise, well, yeah, kind of standardise the technical aspects of the design. So with these adjacencies, you need this amount of sound insulation, um, you know, room acoustics should adhere to this, um, aircon noise and all that sort of stuff. And then the, the, the power, data, fibre requirements and all those sorts of things. So we're trying to standardise that. So when they're doing... Um, kind of very high level facilities planning, they can block out the right amount of space and ensure they've got the right power requirements and things. So doing that for for them. And then we've got um, some other post sort of international post-production um, clients where we're doing design either globally or in the EMEA region. So yeah, doing a fair bit of that. And then on the music side, let's have a little look. We are doing some interesting stuff on the music side. We recently finished Rack Studios, which you may have seen the refurb of, Abbey Road Studio 3. God, it's looking depressingly post-heavy at the moment. <laughs> Nile Rogers. Nile Rogers. Oh, yeah. Sunday Nile. That's right. Yeah. Nile. Yeah, I can't <laughs> believe I almost forgot him. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's great. So he, he's um, got a, a little pad in uh, Turks and Caicos Islands, which is it's quite nice. And he's uh, building a studio there. Um, so it's a pre-existing um, kind of cabin and uh, it's fitting that out. He wants sort of an, at- an Atmos studio. So he wants to be writing in Atmos and conceiving the music with, that, you know, with Atmos in mind. And yeah, so somewhere that people can go out to decamp for a week or a month or whatever and, and record and be immersed in the what the island has to offer. And, and that's pretty awesome. We've been looking at it for over a year and it's kind of... Uh, it moves, it slows, it stops, it moves. And I think that's to do with he's getting some partners, I think, into it, sort of technological partners and things. So he's getting all of that in, in play and then um, then it'll steam on. Will this be a studio that you can complete an Atmos project there? Or is it just somewhere that he doesn't have to leg it into the into a city to work? It's not so that he doesn't have to go to a city. I think it's that he would like to go there to to work it's a very very you know it's like a scaled down air Montserrat sort of thing it's somewhere that you want to be and you want to yeah I mean I guess you could it's you know you you, you can certainly track stuff in there it's, it's not it wouldn't, it's not going to have a big live room it will have a fairly generous sized booth you could record some drums in there and things like that but it's not got a live room per se but it's a very very large control room you know the, the way that he works is very collaborative I think so you, you'd get half a dozen guys in there writing knocking ideas around but yeah for for sure you'd be able to mix mix in there and sort of finalize the product the thing about the acoustics thing is nile rogers etc he's rocking away noel gallagher rocking away they have the money to do it i know sort of the answer to this because it's the same science applied to the every project how do you get around that in terms of reducing costs, you know, and making it more, even for UK guys, how do you work that? It's tricky. You've got a, if we're thinking about room acoustics and your sort of speaker response, I mean, that that's kind of the main thing when we've looked at stuff in the past, Paul, it's, it's been, you know, how do I get a decent sounding mix room or control room? That's quite tricky. You know, if, if you need to achieve a decent level of sound insulation, then you tend to compound your room acoustic issues because by containing the sound you're you're creating more sound you've got pr- pr- pretty pretty good rigid boundaries and, and whatever low frequency absorption you might get through a slightly lightweight partition is is gone um so yeah you compound those modal issues and then you have to work that bit harder to get the room sounding neutral again to, to, to try and mitigate the worst of the modal behavior 
if you're going to sound insulate the room very well and you're going to service it well and also want to get a good sounding room, I'm not sure. I'm not really sure there are any shortcuts right. um, or, or ways of dramatically reducing the cost. It's it's not the cost of acoustic treatment or anything like that. It's all the stages you have to go through. You're essentially building a room, you know, a self-supporting building to ensure that it's well isolated. And then you're having to mitigate, you know, the issues that that introduces, the room acoustic issues that that introduces. And it all just costs money. I was thinking um, this morning, actually, you remember when we went to Hardfire's place? Yes, indeed. In Staines. Yeah. <laughs> so we were kind of pitched up with the, the test kit expecting to throw the mic up and you know, have a good laugh at how terrible it was or whatever. And it, it was really good. You know, it measured really, really flat. And you find this every now and then. They didn't really have any isolation issues that they needed to deal with. So they had quite lightweight partitions. They had quite a big space. So they had a decent amount of volume, which is helping with your modal distribution at, at low frequencies. I distinctly remember there was a, a grid ceiling, a tobacco-stained grid ceiling. It was a cab office, wasn't it? All right, yeah. So you had the is, yeah. yeah. So you had someone smoking away in there twenty-four hours a day. So you had this like yellow, tarry grid ceiling. But those factors led to a you know a good and pretty even-sounding room because the you know the very low end the you know. 20 hertz to 50 60 hertz most of that was just going out of the walls they're acting as sort of some sort of semi-membrane absorber or whatever and there's acres of it obviously because it's quite a big room so the very low end was um pretty well controlled and then by virtue of the the size and the volume of it the the modal distribution was pretty good you know you, you got quite quite a decent modal density when you get to the mid base and upper base then an absorptive ceiling there was some other absorptive stuff they put around the room it just kind of kind of worked so no work came out of that yeah indeed yeah isn't that an example of science it's the same principles applied to everything so mm. is, is that a, is that a way a guy should be thinking about a cheaper studio not needing loads of sound insulation that certainly helps. Yeah, I mean, if you're able to pick your location or pick your site and you can be somewhere where you don't have to worry about sound insulation or you're happy to operate at a level where, you know, whereby you're not causing problem in terms of you know, disturbing neighbours and things. And if the building has relatively lightweight walls, if it's a solid concrete block thing, then you, you're in the same boat. But, um, you know, a lot of places have stud partitions, fairly lightweight stud partitions. Yeah, that, that can be a fairly decent starting point. Certainly not having to isolate, you're going to save, you know, probably half of the amount of money, you know, the kind of project that we're normally doing just by not having to, you know, build floating floors, high mass walls, hanging ceilings, floating ceilings and all of that sort of caper. That was kind of my next question. What's the percentage between insulation and treatment then something like a third on isolation sound insulation th a third on room treatments and finishes and a third on mechanical electrical and all that sort of stuff like broadly you know it's, it's somewhere around there so yeah not having to isolate the space you, you you're saving a good chunk of your budget there i'd say the the the, the aircon electrics is always a surprising amount if you want to do that to to a level where your aircon is a building regs compliant and can remain on all the time while you're recording without being problematic. Right. How did rack work out in terms of aircon and stuff like that? Because you were saying that there was some strange building elements going on <laughs> upstairs and stuff. Yeah, that it was. Yeah, that was really weird. Yeah. So on, on the services side, it was, um, there was a bit of lateral thinking involved, I think not by us, but by the, the aircon um, designers in design engineering. 
Yeah, I, th- I think where outdoor units and indoor units could be sited, where fresh air could come from and be exhausted to and all that sort of stuff. But but yeah, it's, it's fairly standard aside from those site-specific difficulties. It's, you know, it's a ducted unit with some attenuation, providing very low velocity air into the room. Yeah, some of the cha- some of the challenges with that, that building had been hacked about a little bit. There was like a fireplace that had been removed but not supported structurally for, I don't know, 40 years probably. It's kind of been <laughs> sort of Damocles kind of uh, situation there. So that all had to be put right. And then there's, um, I think, a separating floor had been shifted at some point and there was half a staircase sticking down through the ceiling that kind of just been hacked off with what well, looked like it had been chewed off, to be honest. But it, yeah, so there's odds and sods like that to deal with. You kind of find that working in old buildings in particular, as soon as you start stripping out, you discover all sorts of weird and wonderful things that you then need to respond to. And Do you get that you know. in old studios or just old buildings in general? Old buildings in general. Old studios is quite funny. So I did Angel Studios. We did a refurb of that for Abbey Road Institute. And that's really interesting because that, when it became Angel Studios in the late 70s, I think it was, it was Tom Hidley designed it. Oh, right. Okay. Old oh, 20 hertz, Tom Hidley. Uh, 20 hertz or 10 hertz hiddly in his uh, in his later days i think all right okay. but, um yes yeah, so there's a bit of that in there and then um roger darcy recording architecture did a refurb on a control room in there at some point john flynn did the studio one control room around about 2000 i think the um what was the original church where the organ is studio one um it was one of the engineers designed that i can't remember his name now but sort of not a you know, an acoustician as such, but, uh, you know, a recording engineer, like, like quite a lot of those studios were designed by uh, kind of recording engineers with a bit of nails. Yeah, so you, you kind of had these uh, various different eras of studio design and different approaches to studio design. As we kind of went through it, you're kind of unpicking that and seeing how certain people were doing certain things at certain times. It was really interesting and pretty shocking in <laughs> in places but yeah. should we actually talk about the the science room modes and all that why not because i mean i suppose the, the solution to that or the way that you deal with room modes is tends to be the same regardless of uh, the size of the room room modes in in any room obviously the the, the frequencies that are, out are related to the dimensions of the room and the volume of the room the bigger the room the lower the frequency the kind of the dominant modes and where the room modes are spaced out so where you hear them as distinct peaks and then gaps in between modes in a big room that's much lower down and and after a certain point at kind of out of harm's way but in a smaller room like most people are, are working in you know say it's 10 feet by 12 feet or something like that those those modal frequencies would be fairly well spaced out right through the the usable base region so you will end up with notes that are going to sing and notes that are you know not really going to hit and if you don't deal with them your monitoring response or the frequency response of the room is going to peak up quite considerably at certain frequencies and and um, not others what sort of level can you expect dips and etc in the frequency six to ten db for for fairly strong ones you know be, you can be up by six to ten db if if depending on speaker and microphone position you can also get cancellations of a an equal nature so you, you could easily have a 20 db swing between a, something prominent and something that's missing the aim of your acoustic treatment or the, what you're trying to achieve with your acoustic treatment you're never going to get rid of modal behavior you're you're trying to reduce the 
the swing between the, the, the peaks and the troughs. And with positioning of speakers and mixed positions and things like that, you're trying to get everything it, to, to a position where you have the best balance of, of energy in the room, which is why you generally see a mixed position somewhere around a third or two thirds down the way of a room's axis. The balance over all modes, uh, the, the energy that you get over all modes is unlikely to be a significant peak or a significant trough around about a third of the way. If you bang centre in a room or a quarter of the way along the room, then at certain modes you have a massive peak or a massive trough. For, you know. So you're kind of working with the geometry of the space to try and make things less bad rather than to make things perfect, if you know what I mean. <laughs> then the treatment itself, and there are kind of three um, different types of treatment that you commonly see. Most commonly you see porous absorption, so foams, rock wool, all of that sort of stuff which um, responds to particle velocity. So, you know, the particles are oscillating quite wildly and you put this porous absorption in there, it, it creates a lot of resistance and dissipates that sound energy as heat. Particle velocity is maximum for any given frequency, a quarter wavelength away from a boundary. At a boundary, it stops and reverses. So particle velocity is zero at a ring boundary and it gets progressively greater as you move away. Then you've got kind of membrane absorbers or, or panel absorbers, that kind of thing, which it's generally a mass on a sealed cavity, so a mass spring system. And that responds to sound pressure, sound pressure being a maximum at a room boundary, which is why if your sofa's right up against the back wall, you get a massive base tilt up because sound pressure is much greater there. So what you most commonly see is porous absorption in a studio uh, and that's you know that's what you typically buy off the shelf as acoustic treatment it tends to be porous absorption and, and your base absorption is a triangular wedge of foam that sits in the corner of of a room how effective that is is obviously questionable because it's it's working with particle velocity which is going to be zero at a room boundary so it needs to be pretty sizable so, so that means the worst place you could put a base trap is up against the wall a porous one yeah, which is why, I mean, going, going back to Tom Hidley at, at Angel, you know, his, his approach to low-frequency absorption was the, you know, the, the hanging panels of mineral wool or plywood with mineral wool, or it's sometimes bitumen with mineral wool on it. You know, they might be three feet, four feet deep, and they'd be on the side walls, on the rear wall, on the ceiling. So, you know, at that sort of depth, you are genuinely hitting some of those low frequencies, but it wouldn't be markedly different in its performance if it was just you know a meter depth of rock wall or a couple of hundred millimeters of rock wall a meter off the wall or whatever it's it's really hitting that kind of quarter wavelength sort of point whereas the pressure-based absorbers like a, a membrane absorber is going to be most efficient at a room boundary and um by manipulating the the mass of the membrane and, and the spacing you can absorb pretty low frequencies with uh fairly little depth so you know you might get 50 hertz you know something tuned to 50 hertz in 100 millimeters or so so it's a massive space saving but obviously they're not as efficient as a porous absorber at a quarter wavelength you know that'll absorb in theory 100 percent, whereas a membrane absorber might be absorbing say 60 percent, 70 percent at its resonance so you'd need more of them yeah typically well yeah you'd need more area to achieve an equivalent absorption area but then if you're in this situation with the lightweight walls and stuff, they'll be doing quite a lot of the work for you as well by letting the sound 
just go out. In the, in this sort of situation of a kind of a more modest control room or mix room or studio or whatever, but any room like that, what you're trying to do is is get a, a balance of low frequency, mid frequency, and high frequency information. You don't want a room that's stuffed full of foam and no fr- low frequency absorption, and it ends up dead as a doornail, mid and high frequencies, but it's kicking off at the low end. You kind of want a fairly balanced energy spectrum. So what we were talking about before, I suppose. I was thinking about it in terms of specific modal control. So trying to reduce the the peaks and troughs at, at those frequencies, which you are naturally going to peak and trough in your room. If you can do a bit of that, then the rest of it is kind of balancing the energy in mid and high frequencies, avoiding flutter echoes and, um, you know, trying not to overkill the room, but give, give yourself a sort of nice balance of energy. Looking at first reflection points and all the, the basic stuff that sound on sound will have been banging on about for, 30 odd years that's kind of the aim so if you're lucky with your room dimensions and you've got a decent amount of volume no neighbors that are going to get annoyed then that doesn't necessarily need to be a a very expensive endeavor but if you've got a perfectly cubic room in a flat block of flats or something like that then you're up against it i'd say right there's something i was chatting to client about last week was, was that you get used to a room if you're working in the same room all the time you will get used to that you will learn to tune out certain defects or characteristics of the room you'll get to know how it sounds and what what a good sounding product should sound like in your room so you kind of calibrate to your space to a fairly large degree there's some sort of cognitive process going on in the background which ideally you wouldn't have to do but you will fundamentally get to learn your room and be able to to work with it i think maybe the difference with what we're generally dealing with at work is um you know commercial facility where there's a guy who might be coming in for for a day and he needs to sit down and be able to work intuitively from minute one. He needs to trust what he's hearing back and not have to do, you know, an hour of learning and then get his brain working on unpicking the uh, the foibles of the room. He kind of needs to be as right as it's possible to be right from the off. So that's another factor to bear in mind with, you know, if it's a studio for you and you're going to be working in it all the time, you're the engineer, then you get a certain way down the line with treatment, whatever your budget allows, and you learn the room and uh, learn to work with with it. Learning the room, I just find a little bit difficult in terms of absent frequencies. But does your brain mm. fill them in? or <laughs> How do you reckon that works? Like if you're not that, hearing something. Yeah, that's a fair point. Well, yeah, it's not a perfect solution. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But yeah, I mean, I guess that's 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 maybe where headphones come in and and stuff. Yeah, it's a tricky one. It's a tricky one. Right. Um, I don't. I don't really know the answer to that. I know. It's, <laughs> so, for, for, I, I told you this before. I think, but Fraser T. Smith had his studio at Matrix a little while back, and and he does this ear training thing at the start of every day. So it's one of these uh, apps where it will play say pink noise and then it'll boost or cut a particular frequency band and you can tell it octave band third octave band it can do plus minus three db six nine whatever it is test himself see how you know how he's working it's good to get get a feel for um the frequency range and what a three db boost or cut sounds like and he is getting 95 percent all the time you know he's really really hot on it but where he was falling down it was always in the 60 hertz region so we started looking at his monitoring and he had uh, some Genelex with the GLM set up and I measured it and it was the most suspicious plot I've ever seen. It was like someone had drawn it with a ruler. It was unbelievable. But you look at the phase response 
just all to shit at 60 hertz because um, it was just a boundary interference thing. So rearward radiation from the speaker hitting the wall behind, coming back 180 degrees out of phase. And I think what the GLN done had cut everything either side of this 60-ish hertz. So we just switched the GLM off and it still had this massive notch and the phase response around there wasn't very good, but um, it, the phase response was much improved and he started to be able to hear stuff a little bit what was going on there he's doing a little bit better then we started moving you know moving closer to the wall shifts the you know the notch frequency up and playing around with that all of which was helping but what we did in the end we um he got um some geithane it's a german speaker oh yes indeed yeah 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 so they're like dual concentric fellas with a cardioid polar pattern at low frequencies but they genuinely do in that that notch almost completely filled in because there's significantly less rearward radiation. There's less cancellation and less phase weirdness going on. His, his um, scores on the ear training thing went went up massively from that. But yeah, he kind of figured out that if he was reaching for that 60 hertz CQ, he needed to reference on a different speaker or go onto headphones or whatever. Really understanding how important phase responses to, to what you're hearing. You kind of look at frequency response graphs all the time, but that you know that that's only half of the story. But the the temporal side of that is is so key. You know, a flat frequency response with a crap phase response is is no use to anyone. And, you know, a, a better phase response with a compromised frequency response is, is more useful, I would say. So some lumps and bumps in the frequency domain for a relatively clean phase response, that, that's, that's a very good compromise to make. In terms of the smaller lad, how big is big for, enough? For a room. Yeah, or a control room, like specifically, like say. Like it multiplies the problems hugely by having a small yeah, room. Yeah, it's it? kind of, can, I mean, the smaller a room gets, the more complicated the, the, the acoustic solution gets. You know, the smaller a room, the harder it is to make it sound good. So I don't know. I mean, up, up at Tile Yard, some of those rooms up there, pretty, actually, I'll tell you what, we just did um, a load of rooms... In Wakefield for Tarliard, so they weren't that big. They might be in like 11, 12 square meters. So oh, right okay. Yeah, not 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 big rooms at all. And three by four. Yeah, that sort of that sort of ballpark. I mean, maybe even a bit smaller than that. But somewhere around there, um, we had what were the ceilings? They'd been about two point seven meters, something else. What's that? Nine foot. Not huge spaces by any by any stretch, but. Um, fairly carefully designed and and uh, yeah they're, they're good sounding rooms very good sounding rooms we um would have gone up there i think they had neumann k310s in them something like that so they've got a little bit of um tweakability on the back of them so we went into All each right, room okay. and, you know rolled off the base if it was needed or there's a uh yeah fettled them to get them as good as they can and also by measurement and by listening fine-tuned the the positioning of the speakers because you know that makes a, a huge amount of difference you know move a speaker five centimeters and it's all of a sudden exciting a different completely different set of remotes sometimes so um experimenting with speaker positioning and, and the desk positioning to kind of push that listening spot you know where things are going to sound better which was what in in a, a three by four room um pretty much as tight to the front wall as we could get it <laughs> yeah. um, but you know obviously you've got what three foot of desk and all that sort of stuff so you, you're, you're probably going to be about a third of the way along the the length of the room i think that's where they most of them would well all of them probably would have ended up but yeah i, th I think i think you can get some pretty 
pretty decent results out of a room of that size. We did post-production room, sort of um, QC room, which was, what's the name of the company? I won't say it out loud because I'll get in trouble. <laughs> but we did this Atmos room that can't have been more than about eight square metres. <laughs> it's absolutely tiny. I'll show you what? a drawing of it. Now, when you say like eight square metres or, or 12 square metres in the three by four room, is that t- the measurement plus the treatment or less the treatment? Um, I'll find both floor plans and tell you because um, I'll get it wrong otherwise. So that's, yeah, that probably is about nine square metres. I mean, there's a bit of, it's not wasted space, but, you know, space used for treatment and what have you that isn't usable floor space. But that that can't be more than 11 square metres before you start treating it. And that's got a 714 Atmos set up in it, like properly crammed in. <laughs> Sounds all right. And, and, yeah, that's what I was going to ask you. Like, uh, Atmos is a sort of a broad spec, really. You can fit a lot of stuff into it. It, it doesn't have to be as tight as some of the other ones, does it? The Atmos Music came out of um, an Atmos AG specification from Dolby, which used to be certified. So it was quite prescriptive and you needed to have the layout length, width, height, all at least hitting certain figures and the sound pressure levels at the mix position had to be at least a certain level and all of that. They've um, stopped certifying those rooms. So those criteria are now guidelines we would always adhere to those guidelines because they were there for a reason, but um, no one's coming to certify your room. So, you know, in theory, there's a bit more flexibility with how you choose to implement it. You know, the angular separation between all the speakers is, is important. And when you go outside of um, those recommendations, things do start to sound a bit funky, I think. And particularly with the height channels, if, if you've got very low ceilings, the height channels just they don't sound quite right you need to have them very close together to get the angular separation and yeah it all, all starts to fall apart really so atmos rooms do benefit from having a, a bit of size and a bit of height have you had much experience have you been in any atmos rooms i haven't listen? i haven't yet at all would you have time to come and see some stuff on holidays yes <laughs> 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 i'll okay, so get you in some spaces because it's like it is amazing Atmos, you know, stuff that's been well mixed in, you know, with Atmos in mind, or maybe even written with with Atmos in mind, listened to in a good studio with, you know, good acoustics, good speakers that's been lined up. It's amazing. And when you switch back to stereo, it, it sort of sounds a little bit disappointing somehow. But my only experience of Atmos is listening to it in that sort of environment. I haven't heard the kind of the consumer format, you know, yeah. And I don't I, I don't really know what that is. I, I've um, just missed out on the, the Dolby car a few times, but I can imagine in the car it would work quite well because, you know, you have scope to stu- put stuff around you. You've got a, a known and defined listening position and things. But um, the, the, the domestic um, playback solutions, I, I haven't got any experience of. But, I mean, I've got these, um, like the binaural headphones, and stuff but to be honest that but yeah that 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 uh, did nothing for me good content in a in a good atmos setup is is a great way to listen to music 
Now, as I say, I'm looking forward to visiting one <laughs> because mm. I haven't. And a mate of mine, uh, Aidan, has been in some in the US and he says it's just phenomenal. The whole process is phenomenal. But mm. what's sort of phenomenal about it? Is it the fact that it's new? Uh, you know, have you not experienced sound in that way before? Is that one of the elements? Yeah, there's definitely a bit of that. But it's, it's, I think it being phenomenal is quite dependent on the content. There's some stuff right. that... You know, I remember it wasn't Atmos specifically, but I remember uh, there was an Apple promo thing when they had their binaural Apple immersive or whatever it was called, where they took um, What's Going On by Marvin Gaye. If ever a song didn't need to be put in Atmos or touched generally, yeah. I'd say, it's probably that. So, so I didn't understand the point or the motivation for doing that. Whereas um, uh, Billie Eilish, that's something that quite often gets. Um, played as an example and with you know having the 300 or 180 degrees or two pi steradians that's probably more accurate way of describing to to play with for that sound field it moves everything out of the way of a vocal that is just so in your face and so clear and yeah i don't know it, it just it made so much sense for her music is it stereo but more you know do you have um, the, is that the experience you have that it's more stuff no, so in, in that specific example, the Billie Eilish thing, it's, it's the same amount of stuff, which is quite a lot generally, but it's just pushed out. It gives everything much more room to breathe. Right. Which, it, it, like for, for me, just let the vocal do something different. It, it, it felt felt really sort of close and personal in a way that it didn't for me in stereo. Okay. Um, there's uh, some of the other demo stuff that gets rolled out a lot. There's an Imagine Dragons track, Believer. I think that was quite an early... Atmos mix and that sounded like a guy getting excited about having a joystick to you know whiz a keyboard from front to back all the time and yeah so there's a lot of movement in that which is quite interesting is it musical is it is it to the benefit of the track probably not but it's uh it, it demonstrates you know how you can move sound around but yeah maybe that's a little bit gimmicky but I think you know a lot of the mixes I've quite enjoyed it's been a fairly static sound field but it's it's just spread out around you a bit more. I don't know. It's hard, hard to explain. You, you'll hear it. Yeah, <laughs> you'll hear it and you'll know what I mean. I'm looking forward but, to that. Um, yeah, for, 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 the, for those ones where it's, in my opinion, being used sort of really, really artistically, when you go from the Atmos mix to the stereo mix, it's like going from the main monitors to the NS10s. Right. It just all of a sudden, you know, it's all the same stuff, but it just yeah, starts to feel a little bit disappointing. And in terms of designing a room for that, is it difficult insofar as you don't have, you know, the live end, dead end, whatever concept, or, you know, treatment at the front, no treatment at the back kind of thing? Does it all have to be right all the way around? Um, is that how it's approached or, or are there different things? Rightly or wrongly, um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and this is <laughs> the start of every every um, sentence in acoustics. Yeah. So, I mean... For me or for us, that you know, the the left, centre, right are kind of the most important channels still in Amos. That's where most of the content comes, and that's where your ear is more attuned. You know, you're more attuned to sound coming from there. Your perception of sound from behind you and from above isn't as good. So, you know, every speaker is important, obviously, but some are more important than others. I think so. You, we we'd still kind of design predominantly based around the left, centre, right. And then probably the side surrounds would be 
the next most important, but the ones that are behind you and the ones that are above, uh, your ear isn't going to judge them as critically as it is those other speakers. So we kind of um, so is the, we're trying to in the in the Dolby spec, you, you still have the front two or the important speakers and the the ambient ones, whatever are um, smaller speakers. Is that how it works? And- Every speaker has to have a minimum sound power level at the at the mix position right so it's you know that, that they all in an ideal scenario they're all exactly the same speaker okay that's almost never the case um <laughs> so, so they would t- tend to be smaller and you know the surrounds can be smaller and bass managed so you you know you're you're um you've got a sub at the front that's dealing with the low end for you know eight eight of the speakers say so, you know the dolby spec would ideally like you i guess to be using the same speaker all the way around so it's all consistent but that it's not a financial reality or a spatial reality yeah especially when you're converting a room that's already there because i think you mentioned before a a lot of guys are actually doing that they're turning their old rooms into dolby rooms there's a a bit of a rush for that you know as record labels are kind of converting back catalog or offering a an house mix of back catalog there's a bit of a bum fight to get hold of that i think that's that's slowed down a bit now, I think. But a lot of the new studios that we're doing, it's um, you know just a default thing. You you'll make it out compliant because why wouldn't you if you're going from scratch? Yeah, but the spatial things is is huge, and then the cost of the speakers. If you're going from what was a stereo pair to twelve, is it minimum? You know, probably fourteen, fifteen speakers or something like that. It's it's a massive increase in cost of that and then you know the, the converters that you need the processing for those speakers as well that you need it's um it's an expensive endeavor what do you think of sonarworks and all that sort of room eq gubbins pretty good you know ricky damien yes do you meet ricky yeah, did, so yeah ricky yeah uh, i did a studio for him at his place kind of in a, a spare bedroom and we did some some fairly basic treatment in there and um then he had sonarworks kind of mopping up the rest of it. And and it it was really good. It was really good, actually. I think particularly, um, as I understand it, some pretty recent uh, or more recent versions of it, you've got a bit more control over the frequency range that it operates over, whether it only cuts or whether you're going to allow it to boost as well and all that sort of stuff. But the, the key with that seems to be there's a mix, isn't there, like dry-wet mix yeah. or something. And it definitely seemed to be most effective when it was around sort of 70%, something like that. So not absolutely slamming the sonar works, but letting a bit of the um, the natural response through as well. Okay. If you know what I mean. But um, yeah, it's quite good. I think I think you know, like with all of these things, if you're asked, if you're if you're going into a, you know a bare room of you know 15 feet by 10 feet or something that's got a one second reverb time and expecting Sonarworks to sort you out, you're going to be disappointed. But if if you've put a bit of time and effort into treating the room to some extent, and then you're asking Sonarworks to kind of mop up some of the the, the, the lower frequency peaks and troughs, then then it can it can be a really powerful tool. Um, obviously, the aim, the, aim, the aim for us is uh, to ensure that none of our clients ever have Sonarworks or Trinov or anything like that in their room. But, you know, sometimes, you know, budgets or circumstances mean that, that it is a useful tool to just tidy up the last little bits. Like, but the other thing I was going to ask you was about the Trinov as well. Like, what's the difference in terms of quality and... So my colleague Matt would be able to give you chapter and verse on all of this. It's uh, it, it, it gets a bit above my... Uh, 
head <laughs> quite quickly. But <laughs> I think, I'm not entirely sure, but like, Tr- Trinov works with, um, it kind of measures what's going on in the frequency and time domain and it creates a filter to invert that. Okay. I, I believe that's what's going on there. Whereas I, I, I think, and again, I could be wrong, I haven't looked at any of this stuff, that Sonarworks is a slightly more straightforward EQ-based thing. So Trinov, in theory, is is correcting things in the time and frequency domain, whereas Sonarworks is is working in the frequency domain only. Ah, uh, right, okay. I'll, I'll fact-check that and email you. Yes, indeed. <laughs> the question that I ask, and lots of people ask, I'm sure, and I, I, I've either not listened to the answer or haven't been given one, is you can only really correct for the time domain at one finite point in space. But as an engineer, you're doing this or, you know, tiny little movements around all the time or you're going over to your hardware and things like that. So how well does that um, time domain correction work in reality when you're moving Yeah, but like around all the time? The way we used to do it was just take an average sort of, you know, mm. is is that a, a solution? I don't know. How, how, well, so, so with frequency, I... Get that with time. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, with, with an average, you're not right anywhere. Absolutely, yeah. P- p- presumably, um, but you're but you're nearer you're, right in a lot of places. Is, yeah, is that I, an I, I, I can't. <laughs> I, I can't think how that works in the time domain. Actually, Matt's much cleverer than me. He'll be able to tell you. Yeah. So, so, so I don't know. We, we had this um, thing we did for uh, uh, Phoenix Studio in Gothenburg, where he had a room. I can't remember who designed it, and he had some ATC SCM 300s in there, 5.1 system. And he had some issues with his uh, room response, and he had a Trinov in there that was kind of making things work all right. And he decided he wanted to upgrade the monitoring, or change the monitoring rather, to um, PMC QB1 XBDs, the big fellas. We kind of helped him to, to do that integration. But while that was going on, we made some changes to the control room treatment to try and fix some of the issues that were in there which we did, I think. And he uh, kind of got the speakers up and running, got it all set up uh, with his Trinov. And after about a month of having the Trinov on and off, he, he got rid of the Trinov. Because I think it was making, by that point, such a small correction, but you could hear the correction it was making. And I think he preferred, it was probably the, the facing again, I think he preferred the slightly lumpier, unmolested uh, response to the speakers to the one that had been... Process. That's interesting. There's a paper, of, uh, I think it's Francis Rumsey. Francis Rumsey, I think it was. Um, he was one of the uh, le- lecturers on the Tom Meister way back when. He wrote about this, the you know the subjective preference for uh, amongst uh, educated listeners for um, for a, a slightly lumpier frequency response uh, without correction over one that had correction but was flatter. Right. The correction, presumably being in the in the frequency domain and not the time domain. So that's how Chris Walls does it. Many thanks to him for his time and effort in making this podcast. Do visit geniusmove.ie to find out about recording courses to suit you. Thanks for listening. Listener.